This is a show about getting spooked for fun, and neither one of the hosts are associated with the attractions discussed in any way. Except for those skeletons in Devin's closet. Some topics may go from ghoulish to ghastly, so viewer discretion is advised. Welcome to The Great American Scream. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Great American Scream. My name is Devin Wright. Uh, my name is Adam O'Connell. Yes, and we're going to start this episode by saying something that should be obvious to everyone. Uh, Black Lives Matter. Yes. We uh, fully support the movement going on right now. And uh, as we included a few weeks ago, or last week, we will include resources in the description of this episode to uh, donate, get involved, educate, and continue to be active weeks into the future, months into the future, and years into the future. Adam, take it away. Please celebrate Pride Month this year by uh, donating to places like the Marsha P. Johnson Institute, which protects and defends the rights of black transgender people, the Sylvia Rivera Law Project, and the Ruth Ellis Center, which serves uh, homeless LGBT people of color. Uh, Links to those websites will be in the description of this episode, because remember, Marsha P. Johnson said no pride for some of us without liberation for all of us. So please donate to those organizations. And in that, I wanted to kind of tie in our one of our uh, episodes this month with talking about horror and the LGBT community. And as a trans person and a gay person, and a horror fan, it's always been in my interest to examine and understand exactly how LGBTQ people are represented in the genre, because throughout decades of the Hayes Code and really having nothing to stand on except for subtext and the queer coding of villains, uh, there are important films, characters, messages, creators that often get overlooked, especially in the horror genre. Yeah, I, I think the the point about queer coding of villains, there's there is that meme a few years ago on on the internet about why lgbt people cling to villains so much and it's like well you coded them to be like us for decades and now you're confused as to why the baba duke becomes like the pride icon of whatever year that was or why everybody loves ursula yeah it's why we've kind of especially like disney fans have kind of queer disney fans have taken disney villains for themselves yeah i mean to be all Disney villains are gay. Yeah, Hades correct. Is possibly the gayest fictional character. Every ever single created. one of them. Like, and here's the thing too: is I've noticed, and this is not entirely related to our discussion, but as a no, small tangent, in the more recent Disney films and in the live-action remakes, they've really kind of unqueer coded a lot of the villains. They've kind of yeah. they've straight washed them, and because I think they're trying to go, oh, it's probably problematic of us that we queer coded these villains. Which yes, it was, but now that they was in the now. cultural context <laughs> that we've kind of taken them as these queer icons, it's disappointing it's to see them played so straight. To straight wash them, yeah, yeah, and also to play any Disney character straight. As we'll get into with horror, one of the things that makes horror so gay a lot of the time is it's unabashed love of camp Mm -hmm. and all disney villains are usually the best ones are just pure camp and so when you when you straight wash them and make them play their characters super straight in the live action versions it not only makes them less gay it makes them way less interesting yeah they're boring they're worse 
performances. But anyway, yeah, so that's <laughs> nothing to do with horror. No, but today we're uh, going to discuss some of these films and moments and how queer folks are uh, often depicted and represented in horror, uh, what's already been done and how we can improve upon it as creators and as fans of horror. And an important disclaimer that a lot of these films and subjects that we're going to discuss are really divisive for the community. Some herald these works as important cultural stepping stones and some think they are problematic and should be forgotten about in favor of new, more nuanced work by LGBTQ artists. Um, these are just our personal opinions on these things and obviously do not reflect those of the entire community. I totally recommend watching all of these movies that we're going to talk about and uh, forming your own opinions on what you think about it. Uh, we'd also be totally remiss if we didn't mention the Rocky Horror Picture Show during these discussions, but that mm. is going to get its own episode coming soon. So all of our discussion will be in that episode because there is way too much to unpack with Rocky Horror yeah, to cover so it briefly much, here. So much there. Yeah. And in the interest of full disclosure, uh, I have not watched a lot of these movies full through, but I still have opinions about them. <laughs> uh, and obviously this uh, discussion is going on not just in horror, but in all media you're allowed to have incredibly nuanced and specific opinions about specific movies versus others. Uh, and also, I am a, a, a bisexual man, but in full disclosure, I am drinking a Mountain Dew Voltage, so that may take away a lot of my gay points. Of all the episodes you choose to drink a, a, mountain, a blue Mountain Dew during, it's this mm, one. Delicious. And also uh, be on the lookout for a new documentary by Sam Weinman uh, that is coming out uh, on Shudder soon. Uh, it's a currently untitled documentary about the history of queer horror. You can watch it on Shudder with a free trial or by subscribing to it. And then also, if you're interested in this topic, kind of in the broad range of film and not just horror movies, watch The Celluloid Closet. Uh, it's a great documentary talking about the Hayes Code and other ways uh, queer people have been represented in other genres and not just horror. So speaking of the Hayes Code, uh, that's yes. a very important thing to talk about uh, LGBT people in any genre of film. If you don't know, the Hayes Code, or officially known as the Motion Picture Production Code, uh, was a set of moral guidelines used at most major American film studios from 1934 to 1968. Like, that's a so very long insane. time. Uh, it was eventually replaced with the film rating system that we know today, GPG, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Because they decided that we can allow these films to have this kind of banned content as long as we rate them appropriately so people know what they're kind of getting into. Right. And it was specifically a way to avoid somebody else. It was the movie industry's way of regulating themselves so as to avoid uh, censorship by the Catholic Church specifically and then also the government. Um, and the way that Catholicism ranked these movies they had three different ratings it was a b and c and i think this is incredible because a was acceptable morally acceptable b was morally questionable and then c was condemned which is <laughs> wait did the so b stand good. for something no it, that's that's there are so many levels like calling it condemned incredible you have a acceptable c condemned great let's keep the syllabalism and then B is just questionable. That's questionable. Doesn't start with a B. Neither just moral. But they wanted to have the A B C. It's so good. 
Yeah, so in general, the Hayes Code prohibited films from, quote, lowering the moral standards of those who see it. And they did that by banning certain items or themes that could not be depicted, as well as making sure films promoted the correct and moral way of living. For example, if a movie had premarital sex in it, which was allowed, like not a sex scene, but talked about premarital sex or it happened in the plot. Uh, it couldn't be depicted in a way that the audience could perceive it as being acceptable or encouraged. So like the hero could not have premarital sex or the the characters who engaged in it had to be punished in some way by whatever. Right. There's a there's a video essay we'll talk about later that I want to recommend to you all that Adam recommended to me. The funny thing about the Hayes Code is that it kind of created the exact like it forced the kinds of things that were banned to be pushed into subtext and into different genres like horror because they had to be depicted in this scary or negative way, which is so interesting, especially from a from a queer art standpoint, that the reason why so much queer content was shunted into the horror, that's a bad word, at originally shunted into the horror genre was because of stuff like the Hayes Code, but Please go on. Yeah. All crime had to be punished if it happened. Uh, Villains could not win. Uh, Authority figures always had to be respected, especially the clergy, because of those really deep Catholic undertones that the Hayes Code uh, had. And the whole the whole reason the Hayes Code existed was kind of the the purpose was for the film industry to govern themselves. So the actual government didn't have to do it. So right. it was kind of a, a free for all as far as rules goes in that sense. Yeah. And it was like a self neutering of like, all. Yeah. it's so wild for any like when we talk about most art, especially like independent theater and independent film, they are so experimental and generally anti-establishment <laughs> and all this stuff. So for like the pretty infant, like infantile film industry to do this to themselves It makes sense in some ways because they were afraid that they would be censored in the future. But to just like totally cut yourself off at the knees and make yourself unable to make interesting like, yeah, that sucks, man. So uh, some of the things that were banned and not allowed in film at all uh, under the Hayes Code was uh, pointed profanity. So that's anything that mentions hell, damn, God, Jesus Christ, et cetera, et cetera. Any nudity is out. No (laughs) No Jesus Jesus in these films. Any nudity that could be seen as suggestive. So Mm. I guess from what I understand, artistic nudity was fine. But anything that could be seen as suggestive was not allowed. Mm. Um, Illegal drug use of any kind. Uh, Again, uh, legal drug use, totally fine. Yeah. People could people could pop a an Advil. Yeah. (laughs) People could take their Vyvanse in the morning, as I do. But they couldn't do illegal drugs. It mostly concerned like you could smoke on screen. But right. you couldn't smoke like pot. Yeah. Um, no sexual smoking on screen. Yeah. Sexual health, which is anything referring to birth control uh, or STDs, could not be talked of about. Of course. No, no health no in health. films. Um, scenes of childbirth. Children could be born in movies, but you could not have like a childbirth scene. Right. A stork had to bring them, which yeah. is why, which is where the, the tale comes from. Um, any ridicule of the clergy. A willful offense to any race, nation, or creed. Now, something tells me that this one was oft misunderstood or just flat out ignored. Yeah. uh, Yeah. The last one, which is the main one that we're talking about, is 
any quote any inference of sex perversion now sex perversion hey, ding 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 yeah alarm should be going off in your head that is kind of un- now because the, the Hayes code didn't explicitly say like no like homosexual relationships but no sex, gays allowed sex they perversion they couldn't because the movie industry from then to today from its birth to its death eventually is full of the gays yeah. they can't just say no gays so the sex perversion was kind of understood to include right. any kind of same-sex relationship or quote abnormal sex practices even though it wasn't explicitly mm. stated now if it wasn't it that you could include beautiful missionary the the night of marriage prima nocta missionary <laughs> sex but nothing else nothing that's it um the haze code on its own caused problems for horror and at first some of the early films kind of slid by okay uh and the author uh thomas uh, doherty put it this way he said uh, as long as monsters refrain from illicit sexual activity respected the clergy and maintained silence on controversial <laughs> political matters they might walk with impunity where bad girls gangsters and radicals fear to tread i love that frankenstein can kill people that's fine as long as he doesn't do it while while having sex with another man, Frankenstein, if or he any loves Frankenstein, Jesus, or any Frankenstein loves Jesus, and he stays silent about about in this time, I guess it would be McCarthy. Yeah, like, like the interesting thing so about the classic good. monsters is a lot of their films were made pre Hayes Code, so right. they kind of got away with whatever. Like in in the original Frankenstein. The doctor's kind of god complex would not have been allowed under the Hayes Code, so yeah, that's the reason we that, have it. Like, dude, that's that's like half of the whole I know. point of Frankenstein. Um, so it did eventually kind of take its toll on the genre, but there were a lot of sneaky ways different films kind of got past the censor. Um, also, since this law was not government legislation, if a film right. violated the Hayes Code, there was nothing that the the Motion Picture Association could do to stop the studio from releasing it anyway. They just wouldn't have that card that's been like, this film has been approved by the MPAA. They right. could, re- it, they could still the release it. The comics. Yeah, it's the same as the comics code. It's this mm-hmm. idea that the only difference really is that you don't have a coin on your comic, but a lot of the time movie theaters just like comic stores agreed or signed contracts with the mpaa saying that we will not release films we will not screen films that have not been approved by you yeah which is the way they kind of institutional that that's the way it was quote-unquote enforced but obviously yeah. people could still make movies um so yeah exactly and there were several films that completely violated the Hayes Code and got released anyway and were big successes. Good for them. Um, so the Hayes Code is a huge reason why we don't see what we think of as modern horror until the 1960s and the 70s when they got rid of it. Um, and it's really right. the reason we barely see queer people at all in the genre. People were very happy to get back to like the blood and guts and the God complexes after the Hayes Code was removed. But we're also yeah. happy to continue to exclude queer people from the genre. Right. And that's kind of the the whole theme of this is what what was made necessary was the subtextualization of LGBT people across not only horror, but like all media. So when the Hayes Code was lifted, people were like, "Okay, sweet gore, blood, guts. We love it. But we we hate the gays because we've spent the past few decades hating the gays. So that's kind of in us. Yeah. So we're good to keep that going. 
Um, so there yeah. are the ways that kind of people have been represented in the genre. There's a couple of common tropes that yeah. appear both in Hays Code films, films right after the Hays Code and in modern day horror. And one of the most prevalent one of those is what I call the crossdresser as killer. And you have almost definitely seen this done in horror films yeah. before. Mrs. Especially, Doubtfire. Yeah. <laughs> the- <laughs> The scariest of horror films. Especially if you've seen Psycho or Silence of the Lambs. So uh, the the way this trope works, and it's kind of this driven mad by gender dysphoria idea. It started decades ago, and the idea is uh, there's, there's a lot of these horror villains who are usually men who are driven to murder by their mad desire to to be a woman or look like a woman or whatever. It's treated as the thing that makes them crazy and the thing that makes them frightening, the thing that drives them to kill. Thusly, making this trope really bad news for trans women. Yeah. And and especially because the on its basic level, it is just extremely harmful and fucked up. And then if you if you're if you think through this trope, you can come to a place where it's like, oh, the world is so horrible and oppressive to people, to trans women who want to be like accepted as women, that it drives them to to evil and murder like it. it, If you take it to a point, giving this trope way too much credit. credit. Yeah. It's almost always men dressing as women and never the other way around. Right. Um, and I frankly think it needs to die. And here's the thing, too, is it's become so prevalent in horror culture that now you do see a lot of instances of like creepy cross dressing. It's not always treated as like the thing that makes the the killer scary. Like one example I'd like to use is Terrifier, the scene where he's wearing the woman's like scalp right. and her her breasts. It's not the way I've always seen that scene is they're not playing it as, oh, like he wants to be a woman and that's why he's doing all these things because he wanted to dress up in a wig the whole time. And that it's right. it's just treated kind of as another kind of chaotic, frightening thing that he does kind of for sick fun. But it still yeah. has its roots in this trope. Exactly. You compare that scene to the scene in Silence of the Lambs. They are yeah. two totally separate. Where his whole motivation. I mean, they're, they're, right. They obviously have almost identical, what we call in theater studies, semiotical um, importance. Uh, semiotics being the like placement of people and the way that those people become symbols on stage or on screen. Um, so obviously it is still a man taking on the physical attributes generally associated with women in a horror context, but the the intent is is totally different. Yeah, and this trope is as persistent as it is pervasive, um, and people... Yeah especially like a lot of film people will try and skirt around it by saying, well, we're not really talking about trans people because these characters aren't actually trans, which of course these characters aren't actually trans. But I take this dialogue from the end of Psycho where uh, the DA says he's a transvestite. And Simon says, not exactly a man who dresses in woman's clothing in order to achieve a sexual change or satisfaction is a transvestite. But in Norman's case, he was simply doing everything possible to keep alive the illusion of his mother being alive. Now, aside from the the outdated explanation of what a trans person is, what he's saying about the plot of the film is true, that Norman is not 
explicitly trying to be a woman. He's trying to be his mother. Be his mother. Right. However, um, and, and a lot of these movies have these cop out or, or brief lines to yeah. reassure the viewer that the villain is not, in fact, a trans person. Right. It's impressive to have the cop out line in the script of the film. Usually it comes in the interviews 20 years later when yeah. we're starting to realize these things and they go, oh, no, we I, I know you think that this is a trans person, but we didn't have the balls to actually make it a trans person back in the 70s when we wanted to be transphobic. Mm. But now that leads us to be able to have a cop out and say obviously it wasn't yeah. this one they included the dictionary line from 19 whatever and they're like actually what a yeah. transvestite is is blah 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 like lest we all forget that being transgender was classified as a mental disorder until 2019 like last year so transness has always been associated by cis people with being mentally ill or criminally insane. And it's taken a long, long, long time for people to understand the difference between being trans and cross-dressing. And in fact, a lot of people still don't understand the difference. Right. And that problem doesn't just apply to straight people. The gay community, especially the community of like specifically gay men, gay cis men, fully don't understand the difference. It's crazy. Well, all right. Let's talk about some examples of this trope that you may recognize. Spoiler yes. alert for all these films, by the way, that we'll talk oh, about. Yeah, big spoiler alert. Yeah. Um, so uh, Psycho, like we talked about uh, from 1960, one of the earliest examples of this trope. And he kind of exemplifies the idea of creepy cross-dressing. Like what makes yeah. Norman Bates scary? It's the overwhelming love he has for his mother that makes him desire to be her and dress up like right. her in order to keep her alive. That's what drives him to kill. Now, you yeah. can get all technical and say, well, technically it's about his mother and not about women. But he's still exemplifying, creating this horror trope that cross-dressing is something that villains do, something that creepy yeah. villains do. And that also, and Psycho is such an influential film, not only to horror, but to all movie tropes forever. It is it is also an association of cross-dressing being associated with this weird incestuous idea of him kind of being in love with his mother. This also like very handsome and more like traditionally like quote unquote femininely handsome that he's like a, a nice, soft, yeah. like, beautiful man. Like all of those are just crammed together in a in a ball of bad Bad offensive tropes. Yeah. Um, Silence of the Lamps, the other big example that we talked about from 1991. It's perhaps the most infamous example of this trope in the character of Buffalo Bill. His whole thing is that he kills women and skins them to make himself a woman suit because he wants yeah. to be a woman. And they say they do the same thing in this movie. They go, oh, he's not. They, they go, oh, he's not transgender. He just thinks he is. Which What's is a it's <laughs> very silly. Like I get what they're trying to say, right, right, but it's right. not like it, it's, they're trying to inject nuance into this very unnuanced character depiction. Yeah, it's which like absolutely the the codifier of this. This is what you think of when you think of this trope, right? And especially in a movie that is so thoughtful and and it's a great uh, movie. Yeah, and genius in its in its depiction of sexism and the beautiful filmmaking techniques of direct address, like being a movie form of commentary of misogyny, like in such a in such a geniusly made film. And honestly, it's because they felt the need to like adapt an existing piece of media that was problem. Like you could have just made an interesting movie mm -hmm. and then taken out that character. Yeah. 
And it, what? Yeah. Ugh. All right. Uh, yeah. Um, Sleepaway Camp, 1983. Uh, this is a big spoiler mm. for the ending of this movie because it's infamous for its twist ending where the 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 main character, Angela, who's also revealed to be the killer, is revealed to actually be male bodied um, and that she as a child was driven insane when her twin sister, who was actually Angela, Angela. her her original name was Peter um, and her parents died and her aunt forced her to prevent to present as female and go by the name Angela. She's played right. uh, by a cis female actress throughout the series. Uh, all of the films. Uh, there are several sleepaway camp films. And while she's still the killer in the sequels, she's portrayed as uh, no longer motivated by her dysphoria and instead by her dedication to the, to the rules of summer camp, which all, which automatically makes the Sleepaway Camp sequels way better than the original. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, good for her to no longer be killing because of, you know, maybe she has has taken the time that she needs to understand her relationship with her gender identity. She's gotten yeah. some help from some loving friends. And now she kills because people are out of bed after curfew or this, this, uh, spit in the fire. This movie is bonkers because it, it's truly like the whole motivation of the film is centered around this person's dysphoria. And the ending, the whole ending of this movie is them seeing her naked and going, oh, my right. God, like she's a penis. And then that's the end of the movie. Yeah. And the line specifically, I Adam provided me a list of clips to watch. And the the line is literally, oh, my God, she's a boy. Yeah. Which is like such a wild line to and watch today. And that's the end of the movie. That's the end of the movie. And as we'll talk about in in a bit, a, a lot of these films, when when watched through a queer lens, become an interesting like a, an interesting case study of like the idea of like dysphoria or internalized homophobia and self-hatred being a motivator for violence and and killing which is which again is giving movies like this too much credit but is is maybe a reason why when we talk about these today there is a contingency of the lgbt community that find these movies not to be good representation but to be very interesting uh things to talk about Mm -hmm. yeah another one i want to talk about in a in a kind of different a context is uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre of the Next Generation, 1994. It is some incarnation in the timeline of however yeah, Texas Chainsaw Massacre works. And it's the same formula as the rest of them. Teens get lost in a van in the desert, get picked up by this cannibal family. And in the movie for that scene that's in every Texas Chainsaw movie where they're like eating dinner, Leatherpa- Leatherface puts on female skin and clothes and this is an example of how this trope has mutated from being about a killer's gender dysphoria to just the idea of cross-dressing being creepy because there's nothing in the film about Leatherface wanting to be a woman, or at least we don't think he does. Uh, right. it, the, the writers and directors kind of just put it in because like, oh, wouldn't it be creepy if he was wearing this woman's suit during this scene? Yeah, and and as you say, it's it's... Just a shorthand for abnormality. Yeah, exactly. It like, is, there's it other is ways literal, to express it. Right. And it is a literal queerness, like mm-hmm. in the old form of queer. Yeah. And then the, the last one I want to talk about in this trope and probably like the cotton, not the codifier in the way that Silence of the Lambs was because that movie is so famous. This is a decidedly less famous movie, but really like hard hits this trope is Dressed to Kill yeah. from 1980. It's a Brian De Palma movie. 
Uh, it's centered entirely around this trope uh, where the killer is a psychiatrist whose <laughs> conflict between his male side and female side causes him to oh. kill with his male side not allowing him to transition. Apparently, whenever he is sexually aroused by a woman, his female side becomes threatened to the point of murder. Ah, kind of this, a Dr. Jekyll and Mrs. Hyde. Which is also a movie, Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde, which I didn't even oh. talk about. But because we can't go on all day about this trope. But like, of course. Uh, like, this, like, wow, like, wow. Wow, this, y'all. Wow. This, this movie is like something like the. I can't even like put into words just like I don't know it was 1980 but like the a gross misunderstanding of what of gender yeah. dysphoria is and what a trans person is and and how like, yeah there's just there's just a and there's so it, there are so many levels because it's also like a weird multi uh borderline personality or multi-personality disorder mm-hmm. representation fail here like just complete misunderstanding <laughs> of the whole thing. Yeah, and it plays also on the false idea that gender presentation and identity and sexual orientation like balance off one another, like have like right. have to do with each other when they're two entirely separate Indi- yeah, facets things. of someone's identity. Um, yeah. This trope is whack. I would like to see it die, but it is very, very, very prevalent in horror culture and film culture. And like, it, sometimes it's hard to spot nowadays. One thing that came up for me when I was researching this is the scene in The Dark Knight where the Joker visits Two-Face in the hospital and he's dressed as the nurse. He's, as the nurse. Yeah, he's yeah. dressed as the nurse to be disguised and not get noticed in the hospital, but he's explicitly dressed as a female nurse because right. the writers and directors knew people are going to look at that and see the Joker in a wig and a dress and go, that's creepy because he's a villain. Yeah. Like, yeah. you don't really see heroes cross-dressing for plot purposes and when you do it's played as a huge joke right like, it's kind of tootsie mrs doubtfire like right the scariest of horror films I, <laughs> I think the like you said it's it's hard to see the the products of this trope in today's movies because the trope was open and explicit and in some ways central in these older movies mm-hmm. and now they are as so many tropes are now they are just used as shorthand. Mm-hmm. Like even if before they were rooted in like a uh, societal fear about cross-dressing or a like as horror often does playing on this, this political societal fear to like place into a movie to make it scary. Nowadays it is, it is used as shorthand to, to yeah. evoke something. Um, another trope that I want to talk about that is extremely prevalent both in horror and just in all film is the barrier gaze trope, which yeah, I'm sure everyone film. listening to has experienced. Because unfortunately, when uh, LGBT horror characters aren't busy killing, they are busy dying. Yeah. If if you don't know the barrier gaze trope. Yeah. Uh, a little short thing is that the idea is even when we get gay representation, LGBT representation in general, usually those characters are used for uh death and usually not significant death yeah um, usually death usually to advance shock. to shock or to advance the story of the protagonist right who is usually not gay yeah exactly um so classic horror films and especially slashers uh have always operated by like trope rules so that like the promiscuous girl dies because she sleeps around the stoner dies because he's a stoner the final girl lives because she's the final girl 
usually because she's like virginal pure. and pure. Yeah. And in a lot of cases, the queer characters die because they're queer and it's sad. Like I like there's a difference between uh, queer characters getting killed with malicious intent, which you really don't see in film anymore versus right. them dying for shock or sadness. Uh, and yeah. it we see it get used a lot more nowadays as commentary for discrimination. So uh, a couple of examples in Hostel Part 2, the uh, protagonist who's implied to be a lesbian endures gratuitous torture throughout the whole movie because it's a hostile movie um, in Martyrs. A queer woman is flayed by Christian extremists. And in the Westboro Baptist inspired movie Red State, a pastor has a bound gay man shot in the head in front of his congregation as they pray. Now, when we watch these movies, obviously we are meant to feel for the protagonist and we are meant to be angry at the people who are doing this to them. But for that's kind of from a, a straight like perspective of, oh, I can pat myself on the back because I know I'm not supposed to be rooting for the villains here. But for a queer audience, what good is non-villainous representation if it's just to watch us get killed in like hate crimes? Right. And and not only get killed at by hate crimes, but also to see our everyday oppression just reposted on screen mm-hmm. and to obviously it's good for us to be shown as real human beings worthy of an audience's sympathy but it is it would the idea is it would be nice to sometimes survive a film one (laughs) big example that i want to talk about that of a movie that came out last year was it chapter two yes i love the it movies i really like this movie didn't like it as much as the first one but i love these movies uh so it came out last year and had an opening scene where a gay couple is brutalized in a hate crime Uh, only to be finished off by Pennywise after getting thrown in the river. And like, just, I've sat through a lot of really gory horror movies. Gore doesn't bother me. I'm not an easily scared or grossed out person. And this was the like hardest thing I've ever had to watch in a horror movie. It was truly like so absolutely affecting and, and, and hard and terrible and traumatizing to watch. And the scene is straight out of the book, um, which is actually based on an actual gay bashing murder that happened in Bangor, Maine in 1984. Like that, it it is known almost the exact same circumstances of what happens in the book and the movie is what happened to this actual person. And my question has always been like, why? I get that the crime is meant to show the cruel effects that Pennywise's presence is having over the town and how it's making people apathetic and cruel. But why use something that actually happened as a plot point, as if to say this could only happen in a fictional town where a supernatural presence is affecting everyone and not in the real world, even though it 100% did. Right, exactly. Like, as you were describing it to me, that was exactly the thought is like, oh, yeah, Pennywise is evil and he's making everybody else more evil. But in the real world, Pennywise isn't there. Yeah, like, we don't Penny- need Pennywise yeah. for this to happen. Like, it happens. Right, exactly. Um. So th- this movie like that scene in particular caused a lot of yeah there was controversy a, and discussion yeah yeah because people were talking about like should they have kept the scene in on one hand if you get rid of it it's it's like it's erasing the story of of something that happens to a queer character in this movie um but then again it was so traumatizing to watch in the theater and interestingly about it chapter two it kind of had this queer storyline throughout because it had right. another gay character in spoiler alert Richie Tozier, uh, played by Bill Hader in this movie, 
Yeah. And Finn Wolfhard in the first movie, uh, whose character arc in the film revolves around his fear of his, his secret being outed to right. his friend, uh, his acceptance of his childhood uh, crush on Eddie and his sexuality and his journey back through his childhood in which we see the homophobic bullying that he received. Um, right. Now, I think I think personally, from my viewing of the film, I thought this was a very well executed character arc for him. It's disappointing that a lot of his identity was left really murky throughout the story, either for that, because we really don't get 100 percent confirmation that it's his sexuality we're talking about until the very end of the movie. When we see him halfway through the movie, we see him start to carve initials into a bridge and it says R plus and we never see the plus, And then we see him finish it at the end after Eddie dies, R plus E. Yeah. Uh, so it's disappointing that we kind of don't get that until the end. But I think it's been, it was a well done marriage between queerness and horror that really couldn't exist in another genre, especially because the first movie and Richie grew up uh, in the 1980s during the height of the AIDS epidemic. And the so the idea of fear, which is a huge right. theme of the it movies uh, and fear itself would be a constant uh, throughout all of his personal identities, both as as battling Pennywise and protecting Derry and his own discovery with his own sexuality like fear is so prevalent for him yeah and and i think in a in a film that is that executes that really well i i think when we talk about it chapter two i think the thing that's and it in general the thing that's disappointing to me about remaking a film that does have such a an uh an opportunity for a strong queer character arc is that it is 2020 and it was 2018 and 2019 when these films were made the the fact that the arc wasn't as explicit in the book or in the original movies makes sense because of when they were made. But when we make them today, the original TV specials, I mean, uh, when we make them today, we can make it a bit more explicit. We like know mm -hmm. it's an opportunity for the filmmakers to make it more explicit. And when we talk about the opening scene, like we talked about with the Disney villains, weirdly enough, when you straight wash the Disney villains, they become less interesting because of the coding that was present in the original in this instance if you take the film and you make the that brutal scene in the book most likely existed both as a as a as a depiction of pennywise's influence but also as a a point of recognition for the audience and the reader to then view richie's plotline throughout mm -hmm. but today if you're making that movie you can make richie's storyline more explicit which means you don't need that first scene like taking away that first scene unlike straight washing disney villains it doesn't actually take away from the impact of the gay storyline going on in the rest of the movie yeah when and you have the opportunity to make it better when you, when you connect those two like richie's storyline and that opening scene as the film does it pretty explicitly right. The And bringing kind of back the idea of fear, it does show the audience that, like, of course, Richie has something to be afraid of. However, for queer audiences, we knew that already. Like, you didn't have and, to tell us that. Right. And I think today, even straight audiences know that. Mm -hmm. That that mm -hmm. the difference back then is that you kind of have to show, hey, remember homophobia exists? Yeah. <laughs> like, hey, remember this? Whereas today, at least, I think in most audiences, especially American audiences, think that's known i think that, that's, that's a, fair but in the original book as well eddie is actually pretty heavily queer coded it is not nearly as explicit as it is in the films nor is it really a plot point but kind of the queer coding of eddie's character in the book carried on to the movies 
So the inclusion of, of Richie in this is is kind of a new thing for the movie that I, I thought generally was well done in kind of in a complicated yeah. movie. And this is not to say that queer victims should not exist in horror or queer right. villains should not exist because they absolutely should. But they must have more nuance and must exist for reasons other than being killed or being the killer. Right. And they must be killed not only for the fact that they are an LGBT person, but because they are also victims because the killer is so bad. Like, yeah. That's just... So let's talk a little bit more about uh, some interlacing of horror and queerness and how it's been done well before different kinds of representation and some also some queer readings of horror movies that would be considered straight by. Yeah. Uh, standards. By straight people. So one, one of the most well, film considered to be one of the, the gayest horror movie, if not the gayest horror movie of all time, I bet you wouldn't expect it. But is it is A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge yes. from 1985. I we am would, obsessed with this movie now. We would be absolutely remiss not to talk about this movie. Um, it is so like there's a commentary on the movie. Uh, from the original actor where he goes like, oh, I don't understand why people say it's gay subtext. Like, did you go to school? Like, this is this is gay text. Yeah. But, and when the movie was being released, most of the actors and the filmmakers were like, oh, no, it's not gay. Why would you say that? And there was actually a documentary released a few years ago. One of the filmmakers was like, OK, yes, they knew. it was they meant knew. to be subtext. <laughs> like, Yeah, no, they knew. So funny. Um, so it's often regarded as having the first uh, male final girl or male scream queen in Jesse Walsh, who was played by Mark Patton, who was in the closet at the time. But his experience as a gay man, like absolutely like informs his characterization of Jesse and and the, the plot of this entire movie. So the yeah. the hero and villain relationship in this movie is so different than in the first one. Um, I love the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. I love all of them. I think they're great. Um, but it is so different than how it's represented in the first one. So in this, Freddy wants to use um, Jesse's body and possess him in order to inhabit the real world and not just the dream world. Right. He's in his dreams and wants to use his body to get out. Yes. So uh, people interpret this relationship as Jesse's struggle over his sexual identity. Jesse at one point says he's inside me and he wants to take me again, especially yeah. relating to his relationship with his friend Grady, who throughout the movie he relies on to protect him. Right. And it is literally it, it can literally be read as Freddy is a personification of Jesse's internalized homophobia. Like it yes. is like it's a very gay movie. Yes, I'm sorry. I have an iced coffee now. Now that we're talking about Good fun gay stuff, I have an iced coffee. Um, <laughs> so the wildest scene in the entire movie, which I would like to highlight, and we can't talk about this scene for 45 minutes, even though I could. Um, right. But also this scene We could do a whole episode about this film. Yes, this scene perpetuates uh, some major negative gay stereotypes regarding older men, older gay men being predatory. But it's interesting because we get a queer-coded older character and a queer-coded younger character and right. how they're in discussion with one another. So in this scene, Jesse runs out in the middle of the night to try and stay awake and in order to do that, goes to a leather bar. As you do. And this it's, is, it, it is talked about earlier in the film that one of the characters tells Jesse that like, oh, our gym teacher is 
Like goes queer. to these kink bars, yeah. And he goes to these kink bars, yeah. Like they literally use the word queer because it was yeah. 1985. It's never explained why this is where Jesse chooses to take refuge, but like you know, right. you know why. You know why, and he runs <laughs> into his gym teacher. Yeah, um, which like runs... we've all been there. Like... <laughs> um. So. His gym teacher punishes him for catching him at this bar by making him run laps at the school gym. And then this is where this very negative stereotype of them being predatory comes in because it's kind of implied that he's going to assault Jesse in some way. However, the teacher is then attacked by Freddy slash Jesse because it's never because Freddy's been possessing Jesse and it's never confirmed like if he did or if Freddy did it. But so the gym teacher is attacked, strung up naked in the showers whipped by a towel and then killed yeah is how that while jesse like, washes and, and there's does so many layers to this this wild ass scene like like there is the part about like throughout the movie you know oh the gym teacher is gay which is like bad in itself because it portrays again oh older gay men take positions at places like high schools because they are dealing with their they're like in a gay panic their entire lives and that's super bad and then there's the fact that Jesse runs to a leather bar. That's great. Love that. That's good of like, oh, he's he's having his own gay panic. He runs to a gay haven, a leather bar. And then there's a problem of like, not like the idea of a gym teacher catching a young twink at a leather bar and then making him run laps at the high school is the plot of a porno. It is. Yeah. Like, and it's that's not no a good, good one. No, not it's a, not, not, a, <laughs> not not well produced like and, that and is. not positive, but yeah, like, not not good. So the whole movie is not, not I, like I put queer code in the notes. It's not queer. It's just queer. It's not queer coded. Yeah. And Mark Patton knew the whole time. Um, right. And there's some unfortunate implications with how the movie was viewed and uh, because it didn't do as well as the first. Like financially it did fine, but it didn't get a lot of positive reviews. And a right. lot it of was people, literally known by the fandom as the gay sequel. Yeah. For and, a and long time. A lot of like the filmmakers pinned this on his performance being, quote, too gay. Uh, there, we won't get into that too much because it's a very long story with a lot of drama. But there is a really great yeah. BuzzFeed News article that chronicles exactly how this happened and what happened but in that it's now kind of been taken in by the the gay community right. as this it's like the gay horror movie right and and of course it is like adam shared with me a whole playlist and maybe i can include the playlist in the episode description but in that is a video essay called the gay nightmare and it's about this film and one of the things that they talk about is in 1984 there's this study released about homophobic ideas and why people were homophobic which is funny in and of itself that, that somebody goes oh homophobia is a problem let's ask straight people about it <laughs> um but it found that homophobia was kind of divvied up into three main fears there's the gayness as threat to the individual this idea that a gay person or a trans person is inside of you like like that you yourself. which is literally what this movie is that right, freddie exactly. is inside jesse yeah it's this idea that like gay people and trans people don't aren't just people. They are they are vestiges of a of something evil inside you that then takes over. Uh, there's the threat to others, which is mainly due to the fact that over many, many years, a lot because of the Hayes Code in movies, gayness, homosexuality and and queerness in general was associated with things like uh, pedophilia, sexual deviance, uh, 
molestation, like all of these horrible ideas. Um, and they were just so linked because of mostly because of media and then threat to community that 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 the gays are out to destroy the nuclear family and we don't want kids, which is very funny if you have ever met a gay or lesbian couple in their late 20s. All those people want kids and they have kids and they have the coolest high tech strollers out there. <laughs> but. but when you view homophobia through those three lenses, of course, Nightmare on Elm Street is a movie about Nightmare on Elm Street Part Two is a movie about homophobia, which is so cool in a time like this in the middle of the AIDS crisis in 1985, that this is not a movie that is uh, like there are obviously bad parts of it. Uh, but a lot of those bad parts come from the fact that it was made in 1985, like the gym teacher and like the parents, which are very homophobic parents mm -hmm. who like want to send the mom wants to send him to a psychiatrist and the dad wants to like give him a kick in the ass. Yeah. But as a whole, it is it seems to be a movie that is intentionally gay in a kind of positive way, you know, in a way that a lot of movies with these tropes are not. Yeah. I remember the first time that I watched this movie because I had read it as being like an essential queer horror movie. So I was kind of ready to like buckle down and like start looking for the subtext and like pointing out yeah. the little things. <laughs> and I was blown out of the water. And I love Jesse because Jesse truly is a male scream queen. Like if you watch right. the movie, he's embodying all of these characteristics and tropes that any final girl in a slasher movie would. He... He's got a great scream. It's great. the tagline of this movie yeah. is Ugh. the man of your dreams is back. Everyone That's should watch so this good. movie. Everyone should watch this movie. And the thing is, he's also he's the perfect like, of course, he is a, a white cis gay man, which is not the best. No, gay it's not the most indicative. Yeah, it's definitely not the most indicative representation. But he's also of like people. kind and funny and a good person. Mm -hmm. And there it leads to really funny scenes of the two men in the like bedroom and he's like there's somebody inside me and he wants to take over and and the other guy goes yeah her name is whatever and she just wants to have sex with you like <laughs> it's crazy and and in a world where all of us have to pick at little tiny pieces of subtext in freaking star wars movies or whatever to prepare to pick at the subtext and be like oh my god that person touched that person's thigh in that scene maybe they're gay in this one it's just they're gay. It's just there. Yeah. You don't have to go look at no telescope magnifying glass binoculars required. Yes. It is there in 3D. Okay. And much in the same vein, let's talk yeah. about this <laughs> okay. next movie. No. Here's this thing. It's, I'm going to need you all to bear with me here and because you're going to say this and then I'm going to say this and then you're going to close the podcast because you think this is dumb. But listen, okay. Seed of Chucky 2004. Yes. Now don't. <laughs> Turn away. I also saw this in the playlist Just and listen. thought this is stupid, but it's so you got to bear with us. This one is really weird. It has some really, really good things about it and some really bad things about it. So just listen. OK, so the film follows uh, Chucky and Tiffany and their child, who is inexplicably somehow yeah. conceived in Bride of Chucky. They don't, has a British accent for some reason. They don't explain that, but they don't, frankly, they don't need to. Who cares? It's there. Um, so their child is regarded as a freak because of their lack of anatomical genitalia, which I didn't think dolls would have anyway. But I they're guess dolls. Chucky and Tiffany do. Right. Because right, they're right. so obviously there's, gendered. There's literally the shot of they like pull down this poor doll's pants and they're they're smooth as dolls. It's like are. a Ken doll. And that 
A, that shot and like the two Crazy. parents looking back and forth and they literally are like, oh, oh, he, oh, he's a boy. What are you talking about? She's a girl. And then yeah. the shot just cuts back to this flat doll pelvis, huh? which in itself is a hilarious, like that is a good example of a joke scene that is about a person's genitalia or about a person's gender, but is not like it is just they're dolls. So it's funny. Yeah. Like it's. Yeah. Okay. It's like they're they're unsure of the gender of this right. child because Tiffany expresses her desire for a daughter and genders this kid as female and calls her Glenda. But then Chucky insists that the child is a boy and calls them Glenn, um, which is a thing that parents do. They project themselves onto a child of the same gender. I lost, I lost and I'm Adam. going to stop now because Devin just disconnected from me on accident. It's okay. I finished my sentence. Okay. Good. But like. But not only that, because it does. It starts with Chucky saying, oh, and you need a name. Let's call you Glenn, which a wild pull. This yeah. child does not look like a Glenn. No. Uh, and and then Tiffany goes, what a horrible name. Your name is Glinda, which like, so it's but, not okay. actually a horrible name. You just chose the same yeah. name. You guys agree on what you want to name the child. You just don't agree on. Yeah, and this movie is weirdly about like Tiffany and Chucky's like marital problems. Yeah, and in that, how they're like projecting themselves. They 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 want their to project themselves onto their child because like even though they're both murderers, uh, Chucky wants Glenn slash Glenda to be a male because he associates male with violence and he wants him to be a killer. And Tiffany wants to gender their kid as female because the child has expressed their distaste for murder. And she associates that in her head with being nonviolent, with being female. Right. So throughout the movie, Glenn slash Glenda experiments with different expressions of their gender, uh, exploring different facets of their personality through different manners of expression and dress. And they do practice like violence versus nonviolence and how it relates to being masculine or feminine. Right. And Tiffany points out that some Tiffany, this is in the dialogue of the script. Right. The dialogue, the scene in question is that they they're talking about, oh, you say that our kid's a boy when she's obviously a girl. Oh, you say like yeah, and yeah, yeah. then Glenn slash Glenda says, well, doesn't my choice matter? And Chucky goes, well, yeah, it does. Which is <laughs> so which weird. Wild. Um, which, like, Good job, Chucky. Yes, your child's ideas do matter. And then and then they say. Well, I think I want to be a boy. And Chucky's like, hell yeah. And then Glenda goes, but being a girl isn't that bad either. Can I just be both? Yeah. And then Tiffany says that (laughs) some people choose not to live their life as either binary gender because such a binary doesn't line up with who they truly are. That is a piece of dialogue from the script of the 2004 film Seed of Chucky. Yeah, and 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 very like a thoughtful mother explains the concept of rejecting the gender binary and living somewhere in between or outside thereof. Uh, and then mean dad Chucky goes, hell no. And then Chucky fights Glenn slash Glenda, which results in, in, in them cutting all of Chucky's limbs off. Yeah, they win. Like, they win. The 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 transphobe Chucky create commits the the two the. The transphobic doll murderer Chucky, who's a doll, commits a hate crime on the, on his child, also a doll, and then the 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 non-binary icon doll fights back and kills Chucky and dismembers him. Now, we should also I should point out 
that the, 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 the characterization of Glenn slash Glenda happens in this way because I they were like supposed to be one male and one female twin and then right. got combined into one. And at the end of the movie, when I haven't seen these movies in a while, so forgive me that I don't remember exactly what happens. But Jennifer Tilly, who is a character in the movie, but also voices Tiffany, right. uh, has <laughs> twins that we need are... to talk about these movies. Yeah, <laughs> these movies are crazy. Has a male and a female twin and names them Glenn and Glenda. I don't know exactly what it resolves, but that happens. But so this movie is by no means the meditative piece of high art on gender expression that I want it to be. And in no way was it intended to be that when the movie came out. But it remains one of the few attempts that Hollywood has made to discuss non-binary identities or any identity outside of the gender binary. And it happened in a horror movie. Yeah, and it happened in a weird horror movie about dolls killing people. And uh, like it bumbled, it bumbled itself into... A few weirdly sweet lines that accurately accurately inject nuance into the idea of of gender identity, which is so bizarre, and I think probably better than if a major Hollywood studio intended to discuss non-binary yeah. identity. So uh, another more recent example I want to talk about, and this is the idea more so of like a queer coded movie. Uh, instead of being explicitly queer, is The Witch, two thousand fifteen, or the the, the Witch. As it it's uh, as it's yeah. stylized as. <laughs> um, so this movie, if you haven't seen it, watch it. It's amazing. Um, it follows a family of Puritans who have been cast out of their community because the father is considered to be too much of a religious extremist for Puritans. Ah, yes, for uh, Puritans. So our main character, Thomason, has been raised in a society where she's been taught that she is inherently si- sinful. Oh. Mm-hmm. And so there's this omnipresence that she is supposed to feel guilt and shame for who she is. Ah. Yeah. So it's easier for her parents to label her as this threat to their family uh, instead of the witch or rather what the witch is, which is their father's impotence and and inability to provide for the family. Right. Um, Because Thomason is tangible. She's close to home and she's much easier to scapegoat. As as most women who were condemned as witches were. Yeah. So in the end, people to blame. If you haven't seen this movie, spoiler alert, uh, she she chooses to go with the devil who is present on their farm as Black Philip, this goat. uh, And she signs Black Philip's book and chooses to live amongst the community of witches. And she is shown as happy as she gives into her sin, feels empowered and feels freed of shame and guilt. Right. And the sin being existing as she is. Yes. And giving into that quote unquote sin and therefore acceptance gives her gives her power, which is, again, probably maybe not an intentionally LGBT movie. But man, does that sound familiar? And yeah, like like, come this, on, this movie has one of the greatest and gayest lines in all of media ever, which I didn't know was in this movie until you made me watch the clip. And it is one of the greatest lines ever committed to film or humanity's existence. Wouldst thou like to live deliciously? It's from this movie. Know that was from this movie. And I did I thought it was from a goddamn like Arby's commercial. Like, <laughs> like, <laughs> which is great. And yeah. I think it's gonna be the subtitle of this this episode. <laughs> um and uh, another less recent but still two thousands uh movie that we would again be remiss if we didn't talk about is right. Jennifer's Body, two thousand nine. Yes. 
everybody um, I talked to about doing this episode told me that we have to talk about Jennifer's body. Yeah, of course we do. And this movie and kind of like common horror movie culture gets really undersold to us. And most people remember it or associated with as being like a teen sex slasher when it is way more than that. Right. When it is that and so much more. Yeah. And like, let's point out the obvious, the whole she has the whole thing where the scene in the pool where Amanda Seyfried goes, I thought uh, I thought you You only only killed boys. boys. And she goes, I go both ways. And yes, it's a joke. But But she is a bisexual icon. Yeah, as, as throughout the film, is attracted to women. And I would argue attracted to Needy, who is uh, Amanda Seyfried's character. Um, and her attraction to Needy manifests in her uh, really only killing the men that Needy is attracted to or shows interest in. She is jealous. Right. And and as they, like, it, not only not only jealous of the of the man for being with needy but also jealous of the love needy is giving those men uh yeah. not and again it's not purely a sexual or it, it's a nice it's an it's a nice depiction because it's not a nice depiction but no. it is a interesting depiction because it is not in in that moment it becomes far more than the kind of sexual manifesto that that jennifer seems to subscribe to like that she kills the men during sex like that it's a kind of a sexual act to mm-hmm. to kill a man and in this moment it is shown that it is a much more leveled and nuanced love that she has for needy that is like it's such a it it's so weird to talk about these kinds of things when they're in the context of oh but then she goes on to kill she kills a lot of people yeah um and it's only because jennifer attempts to seduce needy in the middle of the movie and it's only amplified when she is then rejected Rejected. and before needy kills her she she calls out jennifer's self-destructive efforts to stay hot and i think for jennifer that is her crush calling her out on how her attempts to be attractive to needy will never be enough needy isn't attracted to women or at least not attracted jennifer and nothing jennifer will do can change that and she she literally stabs her through the heart to kill her. Right. And it, it becomes a it becomes a gay tragedy, which is so common for a lot of gay characters. Right. But in this, I don't know, something about it in this movie, it might be the, the co-option of of gay villains that we've talked about or the uh, the idea of of falling in love with the with the villain in a slasher film and rooting for them. Mm-hmm. But in this one, it does it like. It hurts. It's like, yeah, I think she's bad for tragic in that way. Yeah, because I think her attraction to needy manifested way before she got possessed by this, this demon. demon. Yeah. Um, And the, the, the possession only amplified it, but she had to die along with the demon. Like they couldn't just unpossess her. She had to die. Yeah. Yeah. So we're, uh, that was the last film that we're going to discuss and we're going to kind of wrap it up. I want to mention as a part of that same video essay, before we talk about what we want to see from queer horror in the future, which is Adam's lovely last question for this discussion, Glad did a study, does a study every year about uh, representation in film and found that in 2018, 20% of major studio films had LGBT characters. That's, that's up a whole 5% from yeah, the year before. Yeah, we're moving up in the world, baby. And in 2017, like 67% of those were like gay cis men uh 2018 it was slightly less it was 55 percent, and zero major studio films 
had meaningful representation of trans people. Yeah. So before we talk about who, what we want to see in LGBT horror, movies in general, like, <laughs> we got to get better about. And, and there's a point made about the risk factor of films and why studios are, like, afraid to include LGBT people in, that, in films, even though, again, like we said, the industry is full of LGBT people. It's just mm-hmm. generally they're not in positions of power. They are not in positions to include themselves in narratives. But weirdly enough, the movie genre that people will see sight on scene without looking into them, without caring about representation, and therefore the lowest risk genre to most studios are horror films. They're the most profitable genre because people will just go see them. So that being yeah. said, Adam, please give us our last question and then answer. Yeah, I, I, but I want to talk about what we as actors and as creators and as queer people want to see for horror in the future. Not that we have much of a say right now, but maybe one one of these days we could. And like the, the, the things like what I, I want to say again, when I said earlier and really hammer it in that. I absolutely want to see queer killers and queer victims, but uh, one thing that helps avoid the, the any of the tropes that we talked about is having multiple queer characters in the movie. Like it's 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 quite literally that simple. That when yeah. you have a queer villain, no matter what their deal is, picked, depicted alongside queer heroes or even just queer characters who are good and kind people, that villain becomes the exception, not the representation of the whole community. Right. Silence of the Lambs would be an entirely different film if the main detective was a trans woman as well. Right. And and or was a, a lesbian, which a lot of people do read her as. Yeah. An entirely different movie, because when you when your only representation in these movies is to have the the cross-dressing killer or or the character that dies or the gay villain or whatever, then they become the representation of that community in the film. But when it's alongside multiple characters, they become the exception. Yeah, exactly. When you have one person who is of a specific identity, they must, when you watch them through a certain lens, become representative of the entire, entire identity. That's that's like, as we will attempt to talk about, we've reached out to uh, some people about talking about blackness and horror because it's a topic that we feel we really can't not talk about during this time, especially in a genre that is so caught up in race and trauma and uh, racial violence, uh, mm-hmm. as many horror, much horror is. When you only have the black character who dies first, that black character is going to be representative of what the filmmaker thinks of the whole, the wholeness of black people. Yeah, it's very tokenizing. It's very right. like that. That's no matter if that was your intention or not. That's exactly how it's going to be portrayed. Right. And so now for my answer to the question, which I actually wrote down in my outline, the outline this week included me writing in it, which is a first for this podcast. Yeah, it doesn't happen a lot. But like the, the inclusion of LGBT characters in general, great place to start. But it has to come alongside the idea that their their queerness, their transness, their gayness they cannot be the defining part of their character, which we talk about all the time right. in representation. But it it should be, which is a mistake that a lot of people make, it should be an important part of their character. Mm-hmm. You talk to any LGBT person ever. <laughs> it, it's not like their queerness is an afterthought. It is a 
part of their lives and their identity every single day. And that needs to be represented accurately in, in film. And especially in horror, because if you make their gayness or their transness the center of their character, that can be a problem because your film is about people dying. Yeah. And that is, I think, where we fall into the the problem with Richie Tozier is that even though his, his queerness is a big part of his character arc, we don't get the payoff of it until the last 10 seconds of the movie. Right. And on that same note, we need kind of wider representation. Like, obviously, we need deeper representation. We need characters who are deeply defined not only by their LGBTness, but also by other aspects of their character. We also need wider representation in the fact that we need not just white cis gay men. Uh, like, yeah. as a white cis bi man, I'm good. We don't, I don't need to see anymore. Uh, we always talk about like seeing characters on screen who aren't like us and how that's so important for people to uh, gain understanding and tolerance of other identities. And horror is the best genre to do that in because there is no genre of film. And I said to Adam before we started this, that this whole podcast is just me learning to love horror. There is no genre of film or media in general that that creates more empathy for characters on screen than horror because you're literally seeing them die. We can talk about the, the, the bad parts of that. We can talk about how bad it is to see people of certain identities be just killed over and over on screen because it is horrible. But when we are using the medium of film to include people who aren't included elsewhere and to foster in an audience, usually a white, straight, cis audience, because we live in a country that is white, cis, and straight often, including those characters create so much empathy for them. And as much as I talk about this goddamn movie so much, Get Out was a really important film for a lot of white people because they were put in a place where they had to so strongly empathize with a black main character who survives. <laughs> like, like it is it is so important. Yes, lest, lest we forget that all of these uh, uh, airing on the positive side of queer representation that we talk about, these horror movies are overwhelmingly white. And that is not oh, indicative representation of, of the community at all. Yeah. And especially it's not indicative of the audience of these films either. One of the most important aspects to the idea that horror is one of the most profitable film genres and the most the film genre which most people will see without knowing the premise is because the black horror community is huge and is such a big part of why horror is successful. And a lot of uh, major studios just totally take that for granted. Absolutely. So uh, I'm hoping kind of especially now we're, we're in an age where the film industry is really rethinking exactly about its own practices and what mo- what movies are going to be. Um, I'm really hoping that we see this kind of n- new huge steps in what queerness in horror can be. Yeah. And I think as as two people who are involved in the performance industry uh rest assured at least from my side we are all done with celebrities doing those video apologies on twitter whether it's about pride on this anniversary of pulse or about the the protests uh by black lives matter and other groups the industry itself people who are not publicly facing do seem to really be going through a reckoning that is pretty damn exciting from from my from where I sit, seeing my agency and my management company and other production companies be really strongly talking not only to each other but to 
people outside of them about making the industry work better. It's exciting. Yeah. Um, at any major film studio, if you want to hear about my rewriting of Reanimator, where Herbert <laughs> West is trans because that movie has a big trans undertone that I didn't even talk about in this episode because I could talk about it forever. Um, but tweet at me. <laughs> get, get <laughs> it's at yours. Adam. I'll give it to you. All right. This has been an exciting episode. Long, excitingly long episode. It'll be like a minute, an hour, fifteen, which is great. Going throwing it back to old episodes of Great Record Scream where we just talked yeah. and talked. But that has been it for this Horror X Pride episode of The Great American Scream. If you liked it, be sure to rate and review if you're listening on iTunes or Google Play. On Spotify, the best way to share it uh, is just to follow us and then to share it. It's really easy to just like copy episode link, post it. All the social media sites will like make it a Spotify link. Uh, and word of mouth is the best way to spread the word about the show. So if you liked it, please, please tell other people about it. Adam, can you pimp our social medias? Yes, you can follow us on Twitter at Great Scream Pod um, or on Facebook at The Great American Scream. If there is something that you would like to see us talk about or if you have any thoughts about what we talked about, you can tweet at us or uh, post using the hashtag TGAS. Yes, if you're interested in coming on the show as a person who is a big fan of horror, part of the horror industry, want to talk about the various modern goings on of politics and how they relate to the horror genre, please reach out to me at Devin at DevinWright.com. It'll be in the description. Uh, we want to talk to you. Yeah, please uh, remember to uh, donate to the Marsha P. Johnson Institute, the Sylvia Rivera Law Project, the Bruce Ellis Center, or uh, any organization that is accepting donations right now for both the Black Lives Matter movement and the protection of uh, Black trans people in the community. It's uh, more important now than ever. Uh, keep practicing your allyship. It is a daily practice and it's a daily learning process, not just something that you can do for the week. Yeah. And those who are not allies because they're on the front lines, stay strong. The work is never done. A special thanks goes out to Michael Segudo for doing our intro for the podcast. And a special other thanks goes out to Stevie Viola, who did the theme song for the Piadcast. You can find him on Twitter and YouTube. Yeah. And that'll do it uh, for us. Is that, is that right? Is that, is I know. That yeah, I think that will do it for us. That'll do it for us. I have been Devin Wright. I have been Adam O'Connell. And hopefully you have been spooked. And Adam. Trans rights. And Adam, trans rights, if you're going out to spook, what do we do? Oh, do it safely. Do it safely. Black Lives Matter, Trans Lives Matter. Happy Pride. Happy Pride.